welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Dr. Nalin Mehta. Dr. Nalin Mehta is a dean for the School of Modern Media, UPES. He's the advisor of Global University Systems and non-resident senior fellow, Institute of South Asian Studies, National University of Singapore. But today, we're going to be talking about his latest book called the new BJP, Modi and the Making of the World's Largest Political Party. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Kushul. Uh, I'm a, I follow uh, the Charvaka podcast quite a lot. Um, so, so delighted to be here and looking forward to a crackling discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, Nalit, before I started uh, today's discussion, I have to say, uh, and I say this and I mean this, and I wanted to say this when we are live, obviously when offline, this is one of the best books I have read <laughs> after a long time. So to begin with, I genuinely want to congratulate you on an excellent book. So I usually start like this, Nalin, every time I have a discussion with an author is that I have to ask them, like, this is, this book is very data-driven. Uh, it's obviously a 600 plus page book with a lot of citations, notes, appendices uh, too. So why this book? Why did you choose to pick up a topic like this? Um, thanks very much, Kushal, for your comments. Um, um, the, uh, why this book? Um, see, look, I'm a political junkie. Um, I've tracked the BJP for over 20 years um, um, as a journalist, uh, wearing different hats as a journalist, as a political scientist, as somebody who engages in public debate. Um, what happened was that um, sometime around 2017, um, um, in uh, see, we started, the fact of the matter is that between 2014 to 2019, the BJP has won, whether you support the BJP, whether you're against the BJP, whether you are neutral on it, keep that aside. The fact of the matter is the BJP has won more elections than it has lost between 2014 to 19 or done better in, in those elections as compared to what it was doing in those elections, both at the central and at the state government levels. So um, the question this book tries to answer and why I wrote this book uh, fundamentally, intellectually was, I wanted to understand why this is happening. Because the BJP, uh, the idea, ideology of the BJP, the ideology of Hindu nationalism as a broader uh, category has been around since the 50s, right? Uh, since the time of the Jansang. So, uh, and the core constituency of Hindutva, um, uh, many liberals make the mistake of thinking that uh, it's only because of Hindutva and so on uh, that the BJP has been doing this uh, or, or has made these electoral advances. Uh, that has not. That remains constant. That 17, 18 percent, depending on who you talk to. The the fact of the matter is, the BJP has advanced electorally in the last five years significantly and become the largest party in the world and and the primary poll of India's politics uh, because it has managed to get across to its fold uh, a newer class of voters, cutting across lines of gender, class, caste, to some extent, religion. Now, whether these are floating voters or whether they stay with it for the long term is another, is another thing. But these voters voted for it in ways they never voted before. So the question I wanted to ask was, why? Uh, and, and what is happening in this country? Because this challenges every paradigm of political science research uh, and the paradigms of uh, that define uh, our traditional understanding of politics uh, that I was familiar with, one. Secondly, um, you know, you mentioned data. Uh, sometime around 2017, December, around the time of the last Gujarat election, 
my uh, colleague, the data scientist, Rishab Srivastava, who works out of Singapore, who I think is one of the most kick-ass data uh, coders in, 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 uh, anywhere in the world on, uh, on data. You know, he... Uh, he and I were we were we were working out the election coverage for Gujarat, and he showed me some new data dashboards where we had interconnected a whole bunch of political economic data, and and connected it to electoral constituency levels at the at the assembly level. When I saw that data set, it completely blew my mind because what it was showing me was different from what the pollsters was telling us. It was different from what our understanding as journalists was. So we said, okay, now there's something here. See, the thing with data is that data can often give you a partial picture it can also give you a misleading picture if you do, if you get your questions wrong but even if you get everything right it can tell you what happened in an ideal world it can't tell you why it happened it can't tell you whether whether this was just a correlation of things or whether or whether something was done specifically to trigger those events those patterns that you see in the data so what we then did was and this was at a very experimental stage then we then traveled across gujarat um, after seeing those data sets and after improving those data sets and seeing those dashboards, and we traveled constituency by constituency in that election to see what's happening on the ground to whether he's sort of kagas pe ho hai, data set me ho hai, ki zameen pe bhi ho hai ki nahi ho hai. And then that validated some of those assumptions. Then we tested this model further in the Karnataka elections of 2018. And again, we found a similar result. Uh, and then in the five state elections of 2018, December in Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, Chhattisgarh, and a couple of other states. And that Firstly, reassured us about our modeling and what it was, what was happening. And what we did was, um, then the idea of the book was born. That we said, okay, fine. Now there is something deep happening in this country that we are not catching. But the data tells us one part of the story. Now we need to supplement it to first validate it, cross-triangulate it, do a whole bunch of things. So for example, we used a lot of satellite imagery. Uh, and we triangulated it to the constituency level and we matched it with many other data sets. And then we did a, a more than 200 interviews with different political leaders across different parties, across different states. We then went to the archives. Uh, uh, we looked at the BJP archives, the RSS archives, uh, the, uh, the archive in uh, Rambau Malgi Pramodini, which is a training center in Thane, uh, where there's a phenomenal BJP and RSS archive. So that really in improved my understanding of the back backstory of this, if you like. And then we put it all together. And uh, also the archive at the Murti Memorial Library, at, uh, the Nehru Memorial Library at the Murti in Delhi. And that you know that was the the that was all the raw material that went into the making of this book and after the 2019 election after uh, uh, the bjp won its second triumph at the national level under narendra modi that's when i started writing the book and i will say i'll just conclude by saying one thing um, look i'm a political junkie i've said that before i read five six papers a day across two, uh, at least two languages um, um, uh, you know i've run large news organizations uh, where my full time job was to track politics but 80 to 90% of what was in the book, what is in the book now, I did not know before we started digging below the surface. It surprised me. And that's why it took us so long to, to validate it, to cross-validate, to make sure ki, 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 that this is correct. Because some of the data, I couldn't believe myself when I first saw it. So it took us a lot of time to validate it, to cross, and, and, to, and, and you know, it completely changed my understanding of, of, of what's happening in this country. You know what blew me away was just like, for example, when you begin it, you talk about a, a database that you guys were looking at. So from reading from your book, you say this newly created database on BJP literature includes 8,579 BJP speeches, press releases and party articles published over 13 years between 
2005 and 2019, 4.98 million words to be precise. 162 issues of the BJP fortnightly magazine, Kamal Sandesh, which is 2009 to 19. 230 issues of the RSS weekly organizer, May 2015 to December 2019. And you, you go ahead and you state a lot of things. But now I want to talk about something before we get into it in the beginning itself. So there are two specific tools that you have used in this book. One obviously being the Narad Index, right? And the other is, if I remember the name correctly, was the Mehta Singh uh, Index. Index, right? yes. So now for the benefit of uh, my listeners and viewers, I will request you because uh, now yeah. somebody might say, Bhaiya, podcast hai, it's not technical. Because this book, until and unless, because at the end of the day, you have created a model. And until and unless we don't understand what your modeling is based on and how, so like, for example, I did state what were the data sets you were giving a look at in. But what are these two indices and what do you do through that? If you could explain that to begin with. So uh, actually, Kushal, we, we created three uh, new properties around data. The first is the Narad index. Um, the second is the Mehta Singh social index, as you pointed out. And the third is Polniti. So I'll take each of these one by one. Um, the Narad index um, is 11,500 BJP-linked documents running over a 15-year period. Uh, the point of that was that we see what happens is that when we um, uh, when we analyze the idea of that was to basically to analyze what is the party communicating, how are those patterns of communication changing to different audiences, and how do they vary across the different levels of the party and the wider Sangh Parivar? Is there a difference? If there is a difference, what is that difference? And what does that tell us? That was the idea. So what we did was we looked at both its offline communications and its online communications. In the offline communication, we did we uh, uh, we took about eight and a half thousand uh, uh, BJP documents, which is every speech by BJP leader uh, by BJP leaders, which is published on their website. Uh, uh, all speeches by the by the party presidents, all articles, all press releases by the party. So that told us offline. This is what is disseminated in their of offline literature. Then we took all the speeches of Prime Minister Narendra Modi as Prime Minister, some th uh, more than uh, 1,300 speeches. Um, then we looked at the organizer, some 230 issues to tell us what the organ what the RSS is thinking. We also looked at all the Vijayadashmi speeches uh, by the RSS Sarsar Chalak, which is um, the equivalent of their State of the Union kind of address, uh, which is an, an, an annual event. Then we also looked at the Sung affiliated body uh, to give an example of what the Sung bodies talk about. We, we picked up the Vanvasi Kalyan Ashram, which is also a case study in the book, uh, which works in, in tribal areas. And we took their mouthpiece and we took all of their uh, issues, over, over 200 issues, and we digitized them. Um, so over and above that, we also took all issues of the Kamal Sandesh, which is the party's, uh, the BJP's mouthpiece. But we compared it also with the Congress equivalent of that to see what is the distinction. And this was the offline part. The online part, we tracked um, the social media accounts of some 75 political leaders from different parties over a three-year period on Twitter and Facebook. And that included the accounts of Amit Shah, Narendra Modi, um, uh, key party leaders on the BJP, but also the opposition, Rahul Gandhi and so on and so forth. And we looked at it both at the national level 
and at the state level because very often the communication at the national level is different and, and by the same party at the state level they, they privilege different issues what we were looking to see was to understand what are the issues in their communication the party through its various arms and branches privileges when does it privilege them when do they change and how does that link to what is happening in the wider sphere of politics and is there a pattern we can see right so that was one that is what the narad index is the second, uh, the Mehta Singh Social Index is essentially uh, an index which is focused on Uttar Pradesh for the purpose of this book, where we tracked um, four and a half thousand politicians in UP over a, um, in, the, in the period between 1990 to 2019. And we looked at uh, politicians from BJP, Samajwadi Party, BSP and the Congress. And we did it at five or six different levels. Um, the, the idea was to see, see the BJP has always been called an upper caste dominated party, uh, an urban-based party, a party of a Brahmin and Banias. That's the uh, older characterization of the BGP and that was true for a very long time. Now, I wanted to see, uh, is that, is that, does that still hold or has it changed? What does the data tell us? So what we did was we tracked and we focused on Uttar Pradesh uh, because Uttar Pradesh has been at the vanguard of the BJP's electoral advances since 2014. Hindi heartland overall, the 10 states, the 10 Hindi-speaking states of the Hindi heartland overall, Uttar Pradesh centrally, you know, uh, 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 as part of that. So what did we do? Uh, we we looked at all Lok Sabha candidates in the 80 Lok Sabha seats of UP. We looked at every Lok Sabha candidate fielded by these four parties over a long period of time. We looked at uh, the 2017 election in particular, the assembly election, so beyond the below the Lok Sabha level at the state assembly level. We looked at the 403 Pradhan Sabha seats in UP. So we looked at every single candidate fielded by these four parties in the last 2017 election. The third level we looked at is the that after election, what happens? What is the share of power you give to people? So we tracked the Council of Ministers of Yogi Adityanath. What is the caste profiles of that? Vis-a-vis, see, that doesn't tell you much. What tell, the comparison is, if you see the point of this was um, that just, okay, uh, we did that. And then we looked at the office bearers in BJP and UP. What was their castes? And finally, we looked at the district level. So below the state office bearer level, at the micro level, there are 98 district presidents of the BJP in UP. UP doesn't have 98 districts, but several districts, it has more than one president and 98 presidents. So we tracked them. The idea of this was that when you track it across so many different registers, it will give you a social snapshot of the kinds of people the party is, is, is putting in positions of influence and who they are bringing in. And the point of it was to see is this constant over the years or has it changed post-2014? If it has changed, what is the nature of that change? And more and equally importantly, how does this compare with its competition? So, and that's why we tracked SP, BSP and Congress. Because you see, you see, because uh, when you look at social profiles, there is an ideal world that, okay, so many cars, this is the caste profile of India. So the, so the political representation should match that equally. That is the ideal world. When people vote, they are voting for what is the best possible alternative in that compared to other parties. So then, then it's important to compare in a comparative nature that between the four or five parties on offer, whose social profile is, is more representative. And, and when did it change? And does it did it have an impact on the final outcome or not? Obviously, caste is an important factor. It's not the only factor that people vote. No question about that. But it's a very important factor in the growth of the new BJP. That's why we track this. And the third one was um, poll niti. Poll Niti is essentially a collection of 218 interactive data dashboards. 
Uh, eight of them are focused on the economy. Uh, about 100 of them are focused on elections between 1980 to 2019, all kinds of state elections down to the constituency level. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of dashboards on social media. So we put them together, interlink them to understand that there is a political story, there's a caste story happening, there's a social welfare story happening, there are other things happening. How does that inter intersect with the wider political economy? Uh, uh, and, and is there a connection in that? So we also brought that together. For example, I'll give you one example. For example, in Polniti, we tracked uh, satellite data, which became available from a French satellite uh, at very uh, low cost, from two, which showed us data from 2005 to 2019, which allowed us to track night lights. Now, night lights is a, can be a proxy for economic activity. And there's a whole economic literature around that. So we tracked it, we used it specifically to see what's happened in the northeastern states. Uh, in, in the seven northeastern states to see, because one of the claims the BJP makes is that with the double engine Sarkar, there was much greater progress. Now, there are many indicators you can see to, to, uh, to verify whether that claim is right or wrong or what are the issues in those claims. But night lights gives you another additional parameter outside of government data to, to cross-check that. So that's what we used. On the nightlights, I remember even uh, Vivek Dehija, they also had written a paper uh, talking about it, if I remember it correctly. But now I want to focus on a particular quote in your book. So you state here, despite being political junkies and having reported on the state for years, our findings on caste representation in the Mehta Singh Index stunned us. Now, why did you get stunned, Nalin? So, um, okay. Let me uh, let me explain that first. Um, the the dominant paradigm in political science scholarship on the BJP has been that it's been an upper caste dominated party, uh, urban based, and uh, Brahmin Baniya party. In fact, if you look at the most recent, uh, some of the greatest scholars in the world who study the BJP, uh, the most some of the most one of the most prominent among them is Christophe Chafferlo, based out of Sciences Po in Paris. Uh, also teaches at King's College in London, uh, also affiliated with Carnegie Endowment, also on the board of Ashoka University Center for, for uh, the, the, the Trivedi Center for Political Science and Data. Um, and they had set up this database, uh, uh, which tracked the, the, the social profiles of members of parliament in particular uh, uh, across India. And in their most recent work, they published, Christophe, uh, for example, published Modi's India just recently initially with Princeton University Press and then published in India by Context. In India, it was published in uh, sometime around November uh, in, 20, uh, in 2021. Uh, and also in a number of academic articles uh, globally, uh, Christophe individually and, and Christophe and um, Gilles Berniers, who heads the center at Ashoka together, where they, where they argued, and this is, uh, and they're quoted in the book, where they argued that the advances of the BJP, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, uh, in 2019 were characterized by what they called, and I quote here, the revenge of the upper caste elite, right? And they say that 2019, even more so than 2014. And along with that, they published uh, a, a social profile of members of parliament in the Lok Sabha, in the current Lok Sabha, where they showed that the BJP is the most upper caste dominated party when you look at the social profiles of members of parliament, uh, and that this is what has primarily driven the advance of the BJP. They also talked about other um, uh, uh, intermediary caste coming to the uh, party and so on, but fundamentally the thesis was this, right? Um, now, now, this is important because it's not just one scholar saying it, 
this is a center which which puts out this data uh, uh some of the most prominent scholars quote that data their entire reams of academic articles around the world quote that data right because that is a because i'll tell you why they quote that because the social pro, uh, there are the people who cast who track caste as a social category in india there are only two people there is csds fundamentally on an absolute level um, which has which tracks the caste of voters but it does it in post poll surveys or in pre poll surveys and then on the basis of that survey it shows you that so many dalits percent so many percent of dalits voted here so many percent of obcs voted here so many percent of upper caste right the, uh, there are other uh, election agencies that also do that uh, in, but those are all election surveys which necessarily are based on a sampling you can get that sampling right or wrong and some are better than the others but the only center that tracks the politics uh, sorry the caste of of politicians on a, any significant scale is this center and that's why it is quoted by everybody right and it, it's a major bulwark of political science scholarship on indian politics uh, generally and on bjp in particular now when we uh, when my first issue with this was that when i started when when we were reporting uh, in various elections in the hindi heartland in particular and up specifically this didn't um, seem to me uh, to be the case upper caste remained with the bjp no question about it but the shift was not in the upper caste the shift was with the obcs and non yadav obcs in particular and to a lesser extent non yadav dalits now the issue is when when you got a data set on one side and you got anecdotal evidence on the other and by the way this is the view of many reporters and none of these reporters by the way were you know to, to, in these day times of eco chambers most reporters are characterized ye pro bjp hai ye anti bjp hai right i am not talking about pro bjp reporters i am talking about serious uh, 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 journalists who are not tarred by one side or the other who or, or even if they are they have an understanding of the ground uh, whatever they say in public is different but on the ground when they report they have a sense of what's happening on the ground so this is something that i was feeling in my reporting for a long while but there was a data set which which was very authoritative which argued the revenge of the upper caste elite so then what we did was we said okay fine let's test this out the other thing i want to point out here is um, is 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 very important narendra modi prime minister narendra modi uh, about a year and a half back and this is before we built our database he uh, gave a speech to uh, uh, to the bjp's members of parliament which was reported in public and he said in his speech that 68% of the bjp's mla uh, mps in in this lok sabha the bjp had more than 300 mps who were elected in 2019 he put out some figures he said 68.9% of our mps are either obc or scheduled caste or scheduled tribe right so uh, now if you take out the seats which are reserved for scheduled caste and scheduled tribes if you take those seats out out of the 300 and, uh, plus mps that bjp got elected even then the percentage of these categories among the bjp's mps was almost 60% now this is one side of the debate on the other side christoph jaffarlo and the trivedi centers uh, data scientist uh, uh, and political scientists who work on it jeels vernier and others they argued that uh, overall it sort of the overall uh, 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 the is the upper caste that dominated this this current lok sabha among bjps and only 18% for obcs now see you can have a different interpretation of facts you can't have different facts 
So one of the things yeah. I started from and is noted in the book is on this side, on one side is Modi's data, uh, where he is claiming a certain social profile for his members of parliament. On other side is this academic data, which is by far that defines the dominant paradigm of scholarship so far. One of them has to be wrong. Both of them cannot be right. So to test who is right, we built the Mehta Singh index by focusing on UP. To see independently, let's verify what is actually kya hai. And that's how, you know, the categories I told you. And then I told myself and my team, Sanjeev Singh, the very senior journalist who worked with me on this. And there was a whole bunch of people who worked on this. But um, we built that index as a way of objectively finding in UP what has happened over the last 40 years. And we said, okay, MPs is only one category. MPs can only give you a partial reality. Let's look at MLAs also. Let's look at ministers also. Let's look at um, office bearers also. Let's look at district level office bearers also. And what we found was that the reality is totally different from what the academic discourse is telling you. The academic discourse so far has been far behind the reality. And what did we find? We found in the Lok Sabha of 2019, among the BJP's candidates fielded from UP, 57.5% were OBC or SC, right? Uh, in the Vidhan Sabha of 2017 in UP, 52.8% candidates were OBC or SC. Office bearers in Uttar Pradesh of the BJP are 50% from these two categories. In the Ministerial Council of Yogi Adityanath, you know, there are all these, there's a lot of talk of Thakurvad, of Thakur dominance, because of Yogi Adityanath is the, is the uh, Mathadish of the Goraknak peat, the only Thakur peat in India in Gorakhpur. In his Council of Ministers, 48.1% of ministers are OBC or SC. And in the district level, 35.6% were OBC or SC. Now, this is a fact. Uh, now, why is it a fact? It's not just me saying it or my or, uh, or the other half of the Mehta Singh Index, uh, Sanjeev Singh saying it. What we did was we tested it out multiple times. We had a whole, we worked with a whole bunch of uh, uh, resources in every district in UP. We got it blind peer reviewed. We also had it tested separately with the uh, voting agency, uh, Voters Move Research, Jay Murk. He and his team independently did another survey and we, we matched our findings. And, and only when we were absolutely sure, even, even after multiple levels of testing this, we then did random checks. You know, we traveled around district after district and talked to politicians of all sides to say, okay, you're from this district. Here's my data for this district. Can you look at it and see what's wrong in this? Have we made a mistake on this person's caste? And only when we were absolutely sure that this is ironclad that we went ahead with publishing this. You know, one thing that I have found very interesting is, um, I don't know if it, this was your experience too. People tend to make basic elementary errors when they understand India. So I'll give you an example in Maharashtra. So I'll give you two surnames, for example. One is Mahajan, one is Rajurkar. Now, Mahajan and Rajurkar can be a Brahmin, can be a SCST, both, and an OBC. Yes. OBC. So yes. you can have the same. So what I notice is, um, and I'm trying to be as uh, polite as I can when I say this, a lot of South Asian analyses of India, when it is analyzed from outside, Yarunko basics ni aate hamare. So I don't know so how to Kushan, say this. Let me uh, let me add to what you are saying. You know, you are absolutely right. The two examples you gave from Maharashtra. Let me give you four five more examples. You see, the the easiest mistake somebody makes on caste is you see a name on a sheet, and you think it's a Singh, to a Thakur hoga. 
you know a sink can be a obc also can be can be within obc a jart also can be some other caste also can be dalit also can be upper caste also you know in up for example there are five kind of varmas varmas from noida are gujjars which is obc varmas from eastern up are scheduled caste varmas from near bulandshire are sunars which is obc varmas from the avad region are kurmis which is also an obc sub caste those from eastern up are caste similarly if you are a rawat from uttarakhand you are a thakur but rawat from other places are dalits so you know what happens is that that typically the and which is why when we were testing out our methodology it wasn't about ki if five people tell us if this person is that caste we won't agree with that we had to make sure that people who know that family in that district and that party in that district are verifying it otherwise very often even people from the nearby district make a mistake about caste i'll give you an example of which sanjeev in fact pointed out to me that in the case of former up chief minister jagdambika pal for example is a thakur but even people from his own party for many years long after he speak he stepped down as chief minister he was invited to caste based obc sammelans because many people in his own party thought ki ye obc hai but he isn't so so you know so that is the kind of mistakes that happen and you have to be very careful in making this data uh, in in making claims like this and and you have to look check each name and you have to know who's the veracity of who's giving you that information we kept records for each of that see the the other point is that when academics and i think it's a very important thing for academics when they make these claims because academic credibility is based on the quality of your work if you get the facts wrong then i'm sorry at worst it is terrible scholarship uh, sorry at best it is terrible scholarship at worst it is academic fraud and i say i do not say this lightly do you know what bothers me nalin because you stated this i call it the citation loop you create um, i don't know how to say this you create a sense of authority and aura around something whether it's an individual or an institution they use bad methodology bad data and they don't replicate their data right the key thing when you do a scientific analysis is not only do you a double do a double blind placebo control study or you do some sort of sampling you replicate your data right you try to replicate it through other places now when you don't even have basic understanding of a culture and then you create that data and that sample everybody goes around citing that bhaiya maine to inko cite kiya hai ye to recognize that and it creates that citation loop and then there will be 500 articles that are written referencing that data set and then that data set and those articles then go on wikipedia pages as reference material now aam aadmi see you can't expect an average human being right to be so nerdy that they're going to check every reference out and they're going to do so my my question to you in general is that how the hell do we solve this then so uh, okay uh, may i just make a small point on this before i respond to your question um with your permission um, sure, sure, sure. you know there is a on this you see the new bjp and the findings in the new bjp in the book has sparked off a big public debate right um, It has. um, um for example and i uh, christoph and giles have written uh, a a a, a, a rejoinder to my findings i then on network 18 i then wrote a uh, i i published an extract they wrote a rejoinder to it where they questioned my findings i wrote a rejoinder to that rejoinder 
uh, that is available in the public domain. Those who are watching or anybody who's interested can take a look at look at those articles and judge them on their own merit uh, for the facts or otherwise in those. But I'll say one thing that one of the things that we I pointed out was that and this goes to your question to the to the heart of your question about methodology. Methodology must be transparent. Methodology uh, has to be very specific and based on ground understanding. For example, one of the points that Christophe and Gilles raised in their rejoinder to me, and I would love to have this debate with them. Um, uh, they are not here, so uh, so I'll just argue. Uh, I'll just point out what they said in my response to it. On this one instance, they said actually differences probably not uh, apart from many other things which they said which were factually wrong. They said the difference is maybe just because of academic classification. Um, actually, it's because Nalin probably counted these castes in a different manner than us by classification. If the categories had been the same, then the finding would have been similar. And they claimed that. Not, right? And they pointed out the example of JATs in particular, saying that we did not count JATs as OBCs in UP. Uh, and if we had counted them for the sake of argument, if we had indeed counted them, our result would have been similar. Yeah, my answer is very simple. How did you not count JATs as OBC? JATs, this is this is specific to uh, uh, this MetaSing index has been published everywhere. It's been set from the rooftop. It's specific to UP. In UP, under this, uh, there's a constitution in this country, and there are laws in this country which 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 list out castes. This is not a matter of a trifling matter of an academic debate uh, uh, about you know this is right or that is wrong. In UP, 21 years ago, JATs were classified on the OBC list in the state list as an OBC as OBCs. They are listed in the top five caste among OBCs out of 79 castes 21 years ago. If you did not count JATs as OBCs um, in your classification um, and and you deign to include them now, all I can say is you've been 21 years too late, dude. This is just bad scholarship. I don't know what to say to this. I, I I don't know. I don't have any other words. This is just bad scholarship. That this is like uh, the data does not suit my. This is almost that I want to arrive at a conclusion. So I will. I don't know how to say it. That's that's what it seems to me. I'll give you another example. Mr. Narendra Modi is an OBC by caste. Yeah. He he yes. is a Ghanchi. Right, Ghachis were classified as OBCs sometime in the in the in the 1990s in the Gujarat list. Yeah. Later on, it was changed. Right, so I'll give you another example on this question of you know there's an academic debate about intermediate castes and so on. A lot of uh, and that is a debate to be had. That when when is a caste a dominant enough caste and should not be classed? That's a different debate. But when something is in the law, you can't ignore it. I'll give you an example. Devi Gowda is a Bokeliga. Devi Gowda yes. is the first. OBC Prime Minister of India. Narendra Modi is the second OBC Prime Minister of India. But Devi mm -hmm. Gowda is a Vokaliga. Vokaligas are listed as OBCs in the Karnataka list. Now, if you, you will somebody come and tell me that no, no, they are dominant caste hai because they have been dominant in their politics for a long time. OBC count nahi Why? Because I don't feel like doing it. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> this is exactly what I was going to tell you. So, this whole idea of a dominant caste is very interesting. So where this comes from is, I, I, I'm sorry to say, these are not your words, these are mine, but this is my understanding is, it is literally as if any caste in India that votes for BJP or happens to consider BJP as a pro, as a viable option suddenly becomes, uh, you know, 
क्या बोलते कोशर नहीं है भैया ये अभी सो माई मॉडलिंग कास्ट दैट इज नॉट ट्राइंग टू वोट फॉर बीजेपी एंड देन आई मीन एंड दिस होल कॉन्सेप्ट ऑफ डॉमिनेंट कास्ट लाइक इट डजेंट मैटर राइट वॉट शुड मैटर इज वॉट द स्टेट्स consider to be obc sc st and what are general category that's the only way you matter but let's let's go forward and i want to ask you another question about this is that okay may i may i say something sure. before the question yeah, push sure. with your permission see yeah, sure. uh, i think um, this is not a light matter there is a deep academic debate about dominant caste intermediate caste has been going on since the time of mn shrinivas from the 1950s you know all caste scholars um, great scholars of the past people like dipankar gupta um, um, mn shrinivas to begin with now dipankar many others have engaged with this question uh, in this country for the last 8 9 10 years there have been many caste movements for changing the classification of castes for ex- uh, you know you have uh, you have kapus for example agitating you got marathas agitating in in maharashtra for changing the classification you got jat agitations in in parts of rajasthan and others that is all part of one debate It's, right the uh, you can have the in jats for example which we talked about jats were added by the upa government even onto the national obc list before it lost power in 2014 that decision was struck down by the supreme court uh, and and it was challenged again but that debate is happening it, they are not on the national list because the supreme court struck it down but on the state list they are when you are talking uh, the point is you know you can when you are making normative arguments you can have different views and normative arguments ki this should be the case or not be the case is this dominant enough is it not those are academic arguments which must be had but when you talk about data and make definitive statements on a on political parties based on specific numerical data you've got to get your categories wrong by the law of the land if you don't it's terrible scholarship yeah and the problem here is that the conclusion is already decided that bjp is a brahmin baniya party now i need to fit the data to get to that conclusion i'm sorry that's not good scholarship then it doesn't matter where the data takes you that's see i mean to use julia galef's my uh, you know argument about the scout mindset the scout mindset should only tell you is this true or not it doesn't matter if it's true it's true if bjp is a brahmin baniya party it is a brahmin baniya party if bjp is fundamentally changing as a party it is changing i mean we can't do much about it right but yeah. now let's get into some other bits in the book also see b- the book is very big we can't cover every aspect yeah. of it and i want to take a few questions so you know maybe before we start taking the questions i want to focus on the other two aspects of this which is what you take up now there is a beautiful cross analysis between you show in the book through data analysis of what bjp talks about which is parallel to what rss talks about Hmm. and how the rss talks about very different things and the bjp sometimes talks about completely different things and this whole bogey of oh bjp ke upar rss ka influence hai bjp ke upar rss ka influence hai but when when you look at the analysis of what rss stands for and what bjp stands for in fact one more book that i spoke about was uh, you know a wonderful book uh, it was his phd thesis paper by dr ratan sharda where he basically went into all the archives of all the rss um 
you know literature where he analyzed what rss had to say about different you know incidents that have happened in the country and you know people always say rss doesn't speak up rss doesn't speak up and then he was like look they have a proper organization that does these things and you know he copiously referenced them so let's talk about that so what did you find when you analyzed the rss data and the bjp data right so i think uh, uh, before i answer that question specifically i want to preface it with a couple of qualifiers the first qualifier is that the rss and the bjp ideologically they are very different organizations uh, but ideologically they there's an understanding on key aspects which they share Question. now there are different multiple rss linked bodies all of which have their own um, um, uh, you know their own priorities or areas they work on broadly on hindu nationalism i think there is a there is a understanding i think the difference is on the specific aims of each organization and what they are hoping to get out of each of this like the bjp is a very political organization now that's one second is um so when i when we point out the differentiation between their communication that doesn't mean that there is a dispute between these organizations about that it is simply about what they privilege as the most important thing and what they communicate uh, to their audiences and that tells us something very interesting about the parivar the first big difference is that um and this surprised me that most of us think that uh, or at least most liberals think of the bjp as a one trick pony focused only on hindutva um if you see the news the the news channel daily slug fight you see every night you see newspaper headlines that's the impression you will get it's only on the question of hindus and muslims and so on and so forth but that's a very important fault line at which the bjp is the center of it is a lightning rod at the center of it but what this data tells us in the other index is that that is just one of the axes on which it fights and and there are many other axes which it privileges which is significantly important in getting it the floating class of voters that it has without which it would never have had the advances it had so what are the differences first thing is that the bjp you know we track the 25 or 30 top things the bjp talks about both online and offline and we found that the core issues of the bjp which what is it it is issues around around hinduism issues around hindutva uh, the ram temple um article 370 these are the core issues of the bjp right um, these are not even in the top 10 of the issues that the bjp talks about if you see it over a period of time they are they are at it, the importance of these increases over time at different points of time but if you track it on a, on a bar chart you will see that these are lower down its order of priority doesn't mean these issues are not important they are, they are very important to it but in terms of volume it talks about many other issues far more which get lost in the headlines and but that is the outrage it is doing to these constituency what are those issues issues around farmers development uh, around women women is in the top 5 for narendra modi so that and see there has been a huge debate around around farm laws in this country right that is also uh, one of the key axes of the up election that's happening right now till this data it was tracked till 2019 till 2019 one of the reasons why a lot of the farming vote was with the bjp was because it was talking to farmers in a language and in a volume which was far more than other parties which is not captured in the headline that's what the narad index told us the, whereas the rss privileges these issues much more uh, and it privileges education uh, around these issues much much higher so there is a distinction even when you compare bjp narendra modi and rss there is a distinction and that distinction is this the bjp talks about the congress in the since 2016 the bjp talks most about the congress that's interesting because it's the party in power normally it is a party 
not in power that talks most about the party in power right even in 2014 when the bjp fundamentally came with the promise of atte din uh, on the back of an anti establishment sweep uh, uh, fervor in the country against the upa2 and with the idea of narendra modi as a new leader even at that election it was not talking so much about the congress but since 2016 in the bjp's external public publicity congress is number 1 then narendra modi then the party itself then the key issues like development farmers and so on and below that the core issues the interesting part is when the bjp when you look at kamal sandesh its own communication to its own party workers congress is not number 1 what that tells me is that one of the key messages the bjp is telling its external audiences is that we are the anti congress party you know the one of the key things about us is narendra modi as a, as a leader of course our positioning our ideology of course everything else but what we are is that we are not the congress whereas when it's telling its own party workers people who already converted to the cause in the kamal sandesh congress is not number 1 because there it doesn't need to tell them that you know we are the anti congress party they already converted to the cause right and that is about communication segmentation of messaging the rss does not talk, talk about the congress at all now this is the interesting bit and also what i find very interesting is how the others look at the bjp also which is something you you do talk about it and how it tends to have you know that relationship with bjp and how it plays out in the electoral field obviously you don't go ahead and give any kind of uh, you know larger uh, declarations which 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 is something that i enjoyed in the book that you know you go don't go ahead and kyunki aapne aisa kiya aisa hua you just say this is what they are doing this is what they are doing uh, just to connect it to something very interesting somebody did the speech analysis of arvind kejriwal recently which i came across and arvind kejriwal just doesn't talk about narendra modi at all which is also a very interesting facet that you know which is a change from what their politics is of, of. apparently i guess uh, the word on the street is that if you talk keep talking about narendra modi it seems to have a disproportionately beneficial effect to narendra modi so the 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 the, the game seems to be according to some people is that you don't talk about it fair enough now i want to focus about two factors you you did mention it in a passing way but let us dig a little deeper here one is how you show a targeted and systematic approach in the bjp messaging and the larger policy framework in how mm. bjp designs its policies to garner the women vote bank and also i would request you to talk about a little bit about because i think it's only fair and you have given such a huge portion of your book to the bjp muslim relationship if we could talk about that and then maybe we can take the live viewer questions absolutely so first on the policy uh, uh, question kushal if i understood it right see one of the uh, there are three primary drivers i think of the bjp's growth at a national level especially in the hindi heartland one is caste and building a new social coalition of bringing a whole bunch of caste that were never part of its umbrella inside its tent now whether that is sustainable whether it is irreversible whether this is a permanent shift is a, is a different question we are talking about this happened in 2014 to 2019 right now the second was uh, the of what is called labharthis the hindi for beneficiaries of government schemes and these are specific to direct benefit transfer schemes where people get money in their pocket through the mobile phone and aadhar and this is something which was uh, set up under under the upa2 uh, under manmohan singh um, it was tested out um uh, and the interesting thing is with this uh, and, and the third is the is the question of 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 hindu mobilization as well so let me take the first, the, the policy part first 
see this the policy part was set up by manmohan singh uh, the direct benefit transfers if you remember there was a huge debate about aadhar the upa government was split apart on that finally the supreme court enabled it a uida was set up 1st january 2013 direct benefit transfers were launched as a pilot project in 51 districts in india jairam ramesh was the rural affairs minister um what happened was when they tested it out there were lots of problems in the implementation by the time they got the it more or less right the election happened and the congress lost power narendra modi comes to power as the prime minister the genius of narendra modi on this question was that uh, in fact i had a long conversation with nandan nilakini on this which is in the public record at the times lit fest where nandan nilakini and narendra modi had a meeting they had built india stack which enabled much of the backend uh, of of for for bank transfers and you know much of the digital backend for the, for the digital economy he explained to you know they had a conversation on the importance of this narendra modi saw it and he doubled down on it and he backed it politically and put it at the center of his welfare schemes now what does that mean here's an example in 2013 14 which includes the period when narendra when manmohan singh was prime minister there were only 28 schemes that were part of the direct benefit transfer mechanism by 2018 19 that went up to 434 schemes that's a 15 fold increase that's what i mean by doubling down further in 2013 14 the money that was dispersed to these beneficiaries and remember these are not monies going into some government scheme which you don't know may kya what will happen in that this is money going into people's pockets through as benefits right so somebody gets it in their account it was 7367 crores in 2013 14 by 2018 19 that number went up to 2.14 lakh crore which is a 29 time increase and in terms of beneficiaries the number of people who benefited from this in 2013 14 that number was 10.8 crore that went up to 76.3 crore which was seven times if you add the benefits which were given in kind along with the cash that number went up by 44 times so that is the nature of change now why is this important this is very important this is not just any see all government spend money on 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 development and welfare the bjp did two things differently first this was enabled by a by circumstances see this was enabled because of the mobile phone revolution that uh, and the cheap mobile phone and cheap data that started in 2015 with the launch of jio then the dbd architecture was built prior to bjp coming to power which doubled down and really put its full whole political backing behind it and then these many of these programs went into project mode i'll give you an example pm awas yojana uh, is a scheme the often the opposition critique is what did bjp do it only took old schemes renamed them and did the same and did publicity around it that is not true in the two schemes i looked at pm awas yojana there was an older scheme called indira awas yojana which was launched in 1989 that was going on for years it was not a time bound scheme right and what was happening was that government would build houses and the poor would be given these houses but very often the take up would not be very much for a simple reason one there was leakage in the system huge uh, which which we all know in government schemes second was you know you imagine you got a maid maid who's who's living in a certain area you are they're living in a slum the government says i built a house for you 20 kilometers away you have to move there you know your husband is an auto driver your kids go to school here you will never move there right so uh, what happened with dbt schemes was in pm awas yojana the government said we will not build houses we will give you the money we'll give you 1.2 lakh rupees if you are below the poverty line and don't have a pakka house you will build the house yourself where you are and the money will be given in tranches that first tranche comes 
when the first tranche is done somebody will verify it it's put on a gps it's geotagged it's a live dashboard i i've seen that dashboard and then you get the second tranche the same thing happened with swachh bharat toilets there's been a lot of debate about open defecation free india declared itself 100% open defecation free there's been a lot of academic debate that we are not 100% academic free sure you'll always find a village where there's open defecation happening or a slum where it's happening but the real revolution in in swachh bharat was the personal toilets that were built the for women 12 and a half thousand rupees you get to build a toilet you know how many toilets were built 169 million toilets were built in for five year period that changed the lives of women in the houses 17 million houses were built and fundamentally you raise the question of women in in this country this is a country where women did not have inheritance rights to parental property till 2005 if i have a sister my sister would not have a claim to my father's house unless my father direct willed it to her right only i would have a claim this is that that kind of country only 2005 the supreme court enabled that but only for people whose parents died from that day onwards only in september 2020 or august 2020 the supreme court said this right is for for women in whose parents died in, even before in perpetuity in such a country you built 17 million houses for the poor who they built themselves by 1.2 lakh rupees in their accounts and the government stipulated that these houses will be registered in the names of women as the first option so 65% houses were registered either in the names of women of these 17 million alone or jointly in the names of the woman and their husband this is a revolution many of these women will at least vote for bjp once i couldn't agree more because i'll share my experience i worked on a couple of villages under the sansad adarsh gram yojana one of the schemes that were launched by the narendra modi government in their first scheme and i clearly remember so what happens under sagy is sagy is that you go and do a thorough survey of the village uh, it is basically so let's a village is divided into padas right so one of the villages i was working on had nine padas so how the government worked was every pada will have their own members as part of the survey team so you get you know literally people who are living there part of the survey team and they form teams and they go and look at the village so one of the in many houses that i would go they would be like this house is not included in the scheme of the bathrooms I, because you spoke about swachh bharat so i was like why unfortunately i'm not able to pull out the photos out of my archives but i would have shown you so i was like bathroom ka hai so they were like ye bathroom hai and i'm not making it up under the old scheme the bathroom was char bamboo उसके अराउंड तारपत्री बांधी हुई है टारपोलिन दे जस्ट टू कटारोलिन दे डग अ होल इन द ग्राउंड एंड दैट वॉज दी ओल्ड स्कीम बाथरूम एंड आई वॉज लाइक नहीं नहीं ये घर में होगा बोलते नहीं साहब हर घर में यही है इन द न्यू स्कीम आई क्लियरली रिमेंबर बिकॉज बारह हजार रुपए दिए जा रहे थे सो द पॉइंट वॉज गरीब आदमी बनाएगा कैसे लेजिट पॉइंट नहीं उनके पास पैसे कहाँ होते हैं सो हाउ डिड वी वर्क अराउंड दैट सो सिक्स थाउजेंड वॉज ट्रांसफर डायरेक्टली इन टू द बैंक अकाउंट ऑफ द विलेजर इमीजिएटली जैसे ही पैसा आया जाके मटीरियल खरीदो मटीरियल लिया जाता था एंड द बाथरूम वॉज बिल्ड वंस द बाथरूम इज बिल्ड नेक्स्ट लॉट ऑफ सिक्स थाउजेंड इज गिवन अ फोटो इज टेगन द बाथरूम इज जियो टैग्ड यू कैन लिटरली लुक इट अप इन दी वेबसाइट ऑफ दैट विलेज सो टोटली रिलेट विथ यू बिकॉज आई डन इट माई सेल्फ see the other thing i want to say is that you know look there are many academic studies which are about leakages in the in these schemes sure no scheme is perfect there will always be issues in 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 leakages and so on 
All I'm saying is the numbers I've used are numbers from the dashboard and what are reported in parliament by various ministries. In parliament, when they report, they, they check it, you know, much more, uh, more than what is work in progress data. The point I'm trying to make is even if 10, 15, 20% of these numbers are not correct, even then these numbers are huge enough to be revolutionary. And that's something we must take account of. So finally, I found the photo, you know, just so that people don't think I'm making this up. Yes, Nalin, this was it. This was right. the bathroom in the old scheme. Now I'm going to show you the bathroom in the new scheme. So just wait. I'm going to take this photo off. Because as you were saying this, I could immediately go back to her. Like every time I was reading your book, I could constantly go back to my old experience. And then this was the new bathroom. Under the new scheme. Obviously, the villager in this case, you know, he spent extra money and he built two bathrooms. But mm. otherwise, normally, he was like, no, I'm getting support from the government. I'm going to make a proper washroom for myself and I'll use it. And believe me, not only do they do this, I know it for the fact in the villages I've worked in, there are follow-ups and how many of them are using it as a washroom or is almari ka ghar bana ke rakh diya hai? That also is followed up by the Gram Seva. You know, the, the main difference in these schemes has been that what I was saying, project mode, there was a time-bound target put. There was, there was a target put. By this time, so many toilets have to be built. On Pima Vast, there's a 2025 target. By so this much year, so district collectors are under pressure to put the money out. In fact, I spoke to many district collectors in Bharatpur, for example, and he said, look, the first tranche was easy because the money comes, I have to push the tranche out. I have the people who are mapped under the criteria who are eligible. The issue is uske baad to get the work done because second tranche I have to verify. Now they're not enough bricklayers. They're not enough. Uh, they're not enough masons in, in this district to do that. So then you have to get those trains. So, you know, there is a whole knock on effect to this, which happens below the surface. On the question of women, Kuchal, I mean, thanks for showing the thing. <coughs> See, the one of the major reasons which have, which has driven the growth of the BJP is the creation of a new women vote. This is important for two or three reasons. Apart from the fact that it's that that you know, because, apart from the fact that uh, that uh, the women voting is so important, it is this that for a very long time um, from the 1960s, the election commission started reporting the gender breakup of voters in India. From the 1960s till uh, for the next few decades. There was always a huge gender gap in voting. Men always voted much more than women. And there was always this sense that when the women who voted, significant parts voted, uh, not all, but significant parts of them voted uh, uh, what community leaders or their husbands or, you know, their patriarchs were telling them. Uh, in fact, in this, often the voting gap was as much as 12-13%. 2019 was the first election in which the women turnout turnout rate was slightly higher than the male turnout rate. One. Second, historically, at the national level among national parties, women have always voted more for Congress than BJP. The gap has been this much. That gap started narrowing in the last 10 years. But in 2019, the data shows us, at least the at least one of the surveys that, that was done state by state showed among national parties, the first women voted a bit more than men. Second, they voted significantly more in favor of BJP than, than compared to Congress in several states. So that's a very major thing. The question I wanted to ask was, our women chapters looks at this, that why did this happen? Did it happen by accident? 
did it happen uh, purely because of something else which is happening or there was specific outreach towards women that led to this shift at a time when there is a revolutionary change happening about women's awareness and gender issues in this society and what we found was that the bjp used four or five specific strategies that aimed at precisely this result one of those was the welfare schemes and these are schemes by the way which are not women specific schemes they are schemes by the women's ministry which are separate i'm talking about schemes like stand up india schemes like the the the, the atal pension yojana you look at so many schemes you will find that a vast majority of beneficiaries in that are women so that is something which is which is been very specific because these schemes report the number of beneficiaries by caste and by gender and that is very clear that's one second is uh, and that goes back to the narad index that prime minister narendra modi specifically did major outreach personally to women voters this is an older strategy which he used also in gujarat in fact his triumphs in gujarat in 2002 7 and 15 uh, and 12 uh, in particular were driven to a large extent by women voters and he often used to do mahila sabhas specifically with them that's a strategy he brought in fact he held many mahila sabhas in karnataka and many states specifically to women women voters the third was and you know we are talking now just a bit after republic day if you saw on republic day you saw so many women soldiers on display the the woman uh, pilot of the rafael uh, so many contingents being led by women officers look this is not an accident the the bjp did not invent women coming as officers into the armed forces that's an older thing but what the bjp has done as part of concerted policy is to showcase it far more right now at the same time if you look at the numbers of bharti in of women in police in up for example nationally of women positions in the in the police and in the armed forces the supreme court has ruled recently about uh, and that was supreme court judgment about getting women into the national defense academy look at the numbers who applied that is one thing that is policy second is showcasing it uh, and and privileging it and putting out the message if you every time you know i wish i had the pictures just now like you showed the pictures uh, i wish i had the had the foresight to have some of these um if you know very often narendra modi goes to forward posts and gets himself photographed on diwali on other places right go back to those pictures you will see there will always be two women officers or one or two or three standing next to him this is very much part of politic of the positioning of privileging women and along with that the bjp also focused on bringing women in into positions of power and influence publicly at every level nimla sitaraman is the first finance minister of india who's a woman indira gandhi was earlier but she held it a dual charge as prime minister but she's the first one who's not a prime minister who's holding it but below that level at in up for example at the booth level they made a thing that you know the parties at from the booth level onwards there are 21 member karyakarinis or working groups that run the party Uh, the booth level then is level below above that is level at the district then state they said out of 21 5 have to be women 10 have to be scheduled caste or obc this started it after 2014 when you bring in so many people into the party there will be many of them who have never voted for bjp before so it was all part of a strategy so far it has worked for the bjp now there is a dichotomy here because in the urban areas on ca on nrc many of the protests against the bjp have been led by women activists that's a fact that's also a fact Uh, and therefore a lot of liberal academics and journalists don't see the fact that women but outside of those those circles in rural india there is the making of a massive women vote which the bjp has constructed and which is at the center of its growth in the last 5 years true 
So Nalin, now let's take, because there are a lot of questions. I mean, I could have continued with my questions, but let's let's get into the, the viewers' questions. So someone has said, uh, managing different castes and classes and, and RSS can be, you know, sometimes be a tricky job and, you know, because you have ambitions and egos of politicians. So in your study of the BJP's history or... Uh, uh, over the years, how do you think what has BJP done so perfectly that they manage these things that no major splits or infightings happen? What was your you analysis? With this, uh, sorry, the question is specific to with the RSS or within the party? No, no, within the BJP. So what happens is so there is the caste, right? You have to look at the caste breakup. Then you have to look at the class breakup mm. and then you have to, you also have the RSS influence as a separate outside factor. So how do you think BJP has still managed to remain a cohesive unit over the years in spite, look, there is infighting in every political outfit, yeah. but so how I, has BJP still managed to keep on growing in spite of that? In your so I think the answer to that question is that, look, um, people who are into politics uh, are into politics, human nature is such that when you enter politics, you know, you're, there are different people have different motivations, right? Some people want power, some people want it for social good, but you know, there's a certain kind of person who enters politics on a full-time basis. Um, when, in fact, at, at the end of the book, we point out the five challenges to the BJP and two or three advantages that it has. One of those challenges is managing the inherent contradictions of the BJP today, at least in UP or in the, in the heartland, is like the Congress of earlier, which was a social umbrella of many different diverse competing interests, uh, which is different from the BJP before 2014, which is only, um, you know, of certain castes. What happens is when you get so many people into the tent, somebody will lose more than what they were losing earlier. So there will always be that dissension. You are seeing some of that in this UP election. In this UP election, you've seen the defection of some of the BJP's OBC ministers. How much impact that will have, that's, that we will see. Uh, you have seen issues with JATs. Who Jats, for example, uh, were uh, were one of the castes that OBC caste that supported BJP in 14, 17, and 19. 90 GS data showed us that in 2019, 90 percent of Jats voted for the BJP. This time, I think the evidence so far is in that the Jat vote is split. So yeah, so those contradictions are always going to be there. The challenge now, now that you build this BMOT, which is different from before, you the real challenge now is managing these contradictions. I'll give you an example of the RSS. What, you know, I was speaking to an um, Prant Pracharak, uh, head of a Prant in, of the RSS. He told me, he said, you know, our membership is increasing so much. My biggest challenge as the head of this Prant for the RSS is that I don't know how many of, their of them are coming in to be closer to power and how many are coming in because they want, because they believe in our ideology. And that is my challenge. He's mentioned how many people will leave if the BJP loses power. So therefore, he said, that's my my." Um, Test as a leader to know who's genuine and who's a fair weather bird. So I think that's that's the nature of politics. And how the party deals with it is depends on the quality of the leadership and so on and so forth. So, you know, so that's an evolving question. Fair enough. Uh, this is a very interesting question. So uh, this is about data set and modeling. So someone has asked what data set modeling could BJP have used, let's say, to avoid defeat in 2004 instead of, uh, you know, whatever they use, like what has changed in their internal modeling in your studies that how the, how, how have they transformed into such a micro focus party in comparison to say 2004? Why, why, why this change? What has happened suddenly? So I think there are, uh, okay. So this is a very good question. Um, I think, you know, we often think that data modeling or data is a magic bullet. It is not. Um, data 
if you get it, firstly, you can get data modeling wrong, you can get your data wrong, but if you get it right, let's say in an ideal world, data can only tell you directions. The real difference is what calls you take as a leader, what calls you, strategies you, you take, and every decision you take, you will piss off somebody else. Do you have the leeway to take that right call and fight it out and put your neck on the line? And that is a difference. In 2000, the, the BJP of 2004, of, of 2009, of 2000, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the BJP of 14 and 19 are very different organisms. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the underestimated aspects of the BJP's triumph in 2019 was, see, the BJP had uh, a full majority of MPs in 2014. There was anti-incumbency. There was no question there was no anti-incumbency in several constituencies. The BJP dropped 113 of its sitting MPs in 2019. What was the result? 90% of these seats where it dropped sitting MPs, it won. Had it not dropped them, the result could have been different. And that is the call that was taken by the party. Now, obviously, the counterfactual to that is, or the, not the counterfactual, but the risk in that was, when you drop a sitting MP, his supporters will not vote for you. He will, he will create dissension, he or she. They took that call. And, and, they, and, and the result was 90%. Do How many other parties will do that? Because, and, and that is ruthlessness. This is a model that, uh, you, you know, so, so what I'm saying is that data, the data showed them by various, you know, checks and balances. You know, there was an Amit Shah's team that was working on, on doing surveys. BJP had its own surveys. See, today's day, day and age, data is not rocket science. Every party has access to the same data. You only have to pay the right people to give you the right data sets. After that, it is what you make of it and what calls you, you take on it. This is an example of that. So, so basically, if somebody was to ask, so the architect of the change then would certainly be this new team led by Modi and Amit Shah that are basically ruthless when it comes to the only criteria that matters by and large. I'm not saying 100%, but yes. by and large, most of the times it matters yes. is winnability matters, nothing else matters. And I want to respond to this point. This is a very good point. See, there is no question that the post-2014 BJP, the new BJP as I call it, was set up by Narendra Modi, building on previous things and with Amit Shah uh, and, and so on and so forth. This is a different organism organizationally than the previous BJP on many, many levels. It is a rural party, which it wasn't earlier. It is a party of multiple castes, which it wasn't earlier. It is built on Labharatis, which it wasn't earlier. But more than that, La La there, is, there is a serious political mobilization around Labharatis. Every party has Labharatis. Every government has. They built with the list massive mobilization to convert these into voters. And uh, along with that, they, see, there's a, something which struck me when I was researching this. The BJP was always dependent on RSS cadres, inordinately so. Uh, before 2014 because its own cadre had the same problems that every other party has interesting part is how is the bjp the biggest party in the world today because they launched massive membership drives membership the interesting drives. party they did not launch these membership drives before the election they launched it after winning 2014 election few months after that and the second one was a few months after winning 2019 and that is what led to its great cadre growth now Sure, some of these cadres will also will, can also leave. Some of these will be disaffected. Some of them can defect when they lose power. But the fact of the matter is, today's BJP is far less dependent on the RSS than the previous BJP was. It's ideologically linked. But its dependence for last mile connectivity for getting the vote out is significantly reduced with the RSS than it was before. And the power equation has changed.
Yep, I agree with you. Now, this is uh, this someone uh, has asked, what are the problems faced on the ground level by your team and you yourself when you were collecting data and what was the resistance? That's a great question. So, um, we did not, the issues we had were around the Mehta Singh Index in particular. Um, so, for example, on the Narad Index, let me talk about Narad Index. One of the Narad Index, when Rishabh was modeling it, um, you know, we, by the way, we looked at both English and Hindi. I wish I could have gone into regional languages too. We could have had a more differentiated set on different states. But at the, we, were, we were testing it out and we stuck to English and Hindi. And then we were getting the spellings right for the keywords and search word. That was one small technical challenge. It was important, but it was, but it was there. But the real challenge was in the Mehta Singh Index. Because um, the biggest challenge was that when you are going and checking the casts of a whole, you know, you got an Excel sheet with thousands of names on it and you're checking the cast of each person. So... Do you, when you go and find out, who do you believe that this person is right? So one was getting the quality of that thing out and and triangulating different pieces of information on that one cast name and then taking a call. Okay, now that we've checked it with five different people, this, the, this is the antecedent of this person. So typically we check with the district level party presidents of those parties. We checked with family members of, of those people. We checked with key notables in those districts and with other politicians. And only when we had triangulated all of this, we signed off. Okay, now this name is verified. And these are the antecedents of the, the authority of the people who have named this caste from this place. So, you know, you had to go to every constituency to check the right people who would, who would give us the right information. But we didn't believe only three or four or five people. We, we had to, we did multiple checks. The more difficult problem was, and this was, this I did not expect. Um, you know, it was not that difficult to find the cast of people for this election or the previous one or the two, three elections before that. But when you start looking at elections before that, for 15 years ago, 1990, 1994, then people say, so that became a bit more challenging. So in fact, Jay's team and, you know, I, uh, Jay, uh, we, the voters moved research when they independently checked this without seeing our findings, they said, you know, we can, we can do last three elections before that, you know, uh, problem or so you know they also did we they also came across the same problem and one last anecdote the biggest problem we had was with bsp candidates um especially going back more than two or three elections the reason for that was that many see for other parties candidates normally had some kind of organic link with the party so typically you you would always find somebody in the party who would personally know that person who would tell us the cast of that person with BSP, there were many candidates in the past who were given tickets, who um, were not linked to the party in any way before or after. And therefore, many people in the BSP, often the BSP district president in a district will tell us, I've never heard of this person before. But I would say, yeah, but you know, this guy was a candidate in, in 1998 or 2000, you know, early 2000. How can you not know this person? You will know somebody who will know this person. And so in BSP, we found it more than in other parties, that particular problem. Interesting. So, again, very good question here. Somebody says that if BJP is so good at micro-targeting and micro-assessments, what do you think are the reasons for their failure to not penetrate beyond Karnataka and Southern India? Very good question. In fact, we have a chapter um, on Karnataka um, in the book. I think the answer to that is that, see, I don't think fundamentally that just cadre building 
or messaging builds a political party i think those are things that are that gives you arms and legs those are things that give you strength on the ground in close elections they make a big difference but fundamentally people vote for parties because they 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 touch a chord with them for one reason or the other karnataka the bjp's growth has been very specific it has been built on firstly it's been around for 30 years from the 30s onward there were two three reasons why karnataka became a bjp bastion the first bjp bastion south of the vindhyas one of them was the whole uh, uh, the, the the whole issue with lingayats that the lingayats moved which are the major community in karnataka they moved to the bjp after being uh, you know after the whole uh, uh, the, the patel episode and patel was sacked by rajiv gandhi uh, in the in the in the late 80s as chief, as chief minister uh, lingayats moved uh, one side second issue was that there was a whole janta dal politics in karnataka a lot of the janta dal leaders you know jd and bjp were partners fundamentally a lot of the janta dal leaders moved to karnataka karnataka is also not a state which has had a huge history of sub nationalism or language movements and so on it's a multilingual state karnataka is a very different state from kerala from the history of kerala or tamil nadu so there are specific historical reasons why bjp grew in karnataka and there are explained in the book the to answer your question about tamil nadu or kerala i think um the next state where you're going to see advances of the bjp in the south of the vindhyas is telangana the reason for that is that there is a political vacuum in telangana after the creation of telangana the congress has disappeared there is an anti establishment vote every government will have an anti establishment vote even the bjp at the height of its success in 2014 more than 60% of voters in this country did not vote bjp even in 2019 in telangana also they have been this government has been in power to for its second term now since the formation there is an anti establishment vote the congress has disappeared the bjp is now the anti establishment party in telangana and if you see the results of 2019 the seats that bjp won they were in 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 uh, in the strongholds of the trs including of the family of of, of kcr so i think telangana is the next state to watch out for tamil nadu and kerala are different there are pockets of influence in of of i mean kerala there has often been a history of antagonism rss has been strong in parts of kerala uh, in kerala there are pockets where the bjp is strong in terms of vote share but not in seats so it's a long way off um, tamil nadu you know we all know about the back end that happens between admk and bjp and so on and so forth you know there are pockets where uh, several castes in tamil nadu have been moving toward bjp at a smaller level you not it's not significant enough right now to see a result in electoral results but it could happen at a at slowly at a certain point of time in in kerala there are several communities including christian communities which have come out in support of bjp is not enough right now for them to become significantly change the electoral outcome but you are seeing signs of this how long it takes when we don't know but but telangana is the next big one and karnataka you know congress and bjp you know they, they have a different history in that state so i i guess two three people have asked this question what do you see as the future problems that could uh, stem for the bjp considering the kind of growth uh, it is going so, so so somebody has asked you know bjp now tends to i think it is because bjp just looks at winability as the sole criteria so a lot of defectors from other parties have also now started coming in and absorbing itself into the bjp so what what could be the possible uh, down downsides of that and also somebody has asked the general question that could bjp also now that it's the largest political party in the world do you see bjp becoming complacent and getting into a more authoritarian kind of a sphere hmm. in that sense i think these are great questions um 
at the end of the book i do list out five major challenges for the bjp um and i think the first challenge some of the challenges are exactly the ones that you pointed out the first major challenge i think is the question of the fallout of the coronavirus and the economy we are seeing some of that in these elections which are happening now in uttarakhand in particular in up to a lesser extent um the um the uh, the second wave the fallout of that some of it has been mitigated significantly with the vaccination rollout and so on and so forth but the memories of the dead bodies in the ganga the uh, you know no every government would have struggled with what happened with the oxygen shortages you know everybody in this country got affected so there is there is definitely an issue but it also affects the economy in in much larger ways we have only now recovered now and you can have many debates about whether we could have done better or worse that's different but the fact of the matter is today the economy has just about come the size of the gdp to what it was before the coronavirus started right um, there was there was a 21% growth rate in the last q q that was because the, the economy had collapsed completely during the productive activity had happened completely during um, the second the beginning of the of the, uh, the first lockdown now it's around 8 78% the fact of the matter is when you raise expectations you know you are going to have a welfare uh, scheme uh, india is getting more prosperous in other indicators at some point that is not enough people want more kinds of jobs so the fallout of the economy and jobs that is a very major challenge you need to have higher growth rates the other point is that um, when you uh, when you the bjp's model is this is not just about growth rates and economic neoliberal versus leftist arguments the fact of the matter is outside of jobs and and what what people feel about the economy themselves uh, uh, see so far the economy has not hurt the bjp politically one reason for that is that the rbi for example does consumer confidence surveys across multiple cities every quarter and they've done it for last 20 years so that's a good way to track this is done by the rbi so it's completely apolitical one of the things that surveys showed us is that it is not a lot of liberals think look people are stupid and these people are getting hurt by the economy but they are still voting for bjp for other reasons no the people know exactly that what is wrong with the economy or what is happening to them the rbi survey shows this that when you ask people what was what happened to your job and your economic prospects if you they ask them two questions what do how do you rate the economy in the last one year how do you rate your own job prospects in the last one year consistently since since the demonetization on those two questions the answer has been negative in the rbi surveys right and and very negative in the minus but when you ask them what is your prospect what how do you rate the economy's prospects in the next one year and your own job prospects next one year their answer is very high very positive but typically indians are pure research surveys shows us typically indians are more hopeful um, than uh, statistically than western europeans and other con- developed countries even so the fact of the matter is that people at a larger level at a macro level these surveys show us have not have given the bjp benefit of doubt people still think that things will change they they'll get better jobs that can change when that changes the bjp will pay a political price for it so and i think that is a big challenge the second is that the bjp's model of the economy in many ways out its political mobilization because welfareism and labharthi are so important if the economy doesn't well doesn't do too well and we have huge fiscal deficits which the government is working on a lot of money to for those for, for those welfare schemes themselves so that's another challenge this the second major challenge and i think the first is the economy and the fallout of the coronavirus because that's linked this the second is the china crisis 
uh, for a party which is based so much on muscular nationalism you know we know what happened with with pulwama with balakot air strikes how important that was uh, politically but also as a political statement as a strategic statement in the larger security environment you have a crisis with china no two ways about it that crisis is continuing china has made it clear they have made a strategic punt this is not a localized operation there have been withdrawals now agreed uh, withdrawals in certain parts of the lse others are continue if that goes out of control that is a challenge it's an imponderable we don't know how that will go but it is a challenge going forward unless that is unless a resolution has happened it's a different order of challenge in pakistan you cannot deal with china the way you deal with pakistan at all because we are a different they are different military might in different economies china can outspend us to death uh, uh, militarily or, or in any other ways we can't afford a war as a country whether you like it or not right you can hold you can do a holding operation in the himalayas you can't go and attack china in the way you attacked pakistan so i think there are different but it's a challenge politically it will be a challenge the third i think is something we've touched upon which is what happens um when you the problems of expansion when you bring so many people into tent like defectors like madhya pradesh the significant number of ministers in shivraj singh chauhan's cabinet are now people who came in with jodhra at this india now there are people from the older guard who are unhappy that will happen in every state so so i think how you manage those contradictions by bringing more people into the tent because you have to give them space that's why they've come to you so that i think is a challenge how it manages and that will depend a lot on the leadership both nationally and at the state levels the fourth question and i think this is an important question is the leadership in a post modi era but 2024 will be fought under modi leadership but there is no question that while the bjp is much Uh, is has built a structure which is unparalleled in terms of party building compared to the, um, i think the only comparison at a national level is the 1950s congress in the last 5 years the prime minister continues to bring a sing a, a serious political premium to the party there are many people in this country who will not vote for bjp if modi is not at the helm of of bjp they will he brings a premium he is still the most popular leader in this country by a margin the india today mood of the nation survey shows that that popularity fell a little bit in the corona virus period but it's recovering but the margin between him and the next is huge so in a post modi era the question of leadership is very important who will that leader be uh, second level is who, who are the second lung leaders of the party the regional satrap that's another question the final question i think challenge i think is the question of secularism and the hindu muslim question that was raised earlier we didn't actually address it but for a party that talks about sabka saath sabka vikas uh, we uh, we you know the the question of secularism and bring doing away with older politically correct talk which may not have which 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 may have been counterproductive and so on a new conversation of what uh, the state the role of minorities in this country that's a very important conversation the bjp brings a different idea to this than what has been described as the idea of india for a very long time whether that is good bad that's a different debate but how that resolves on the ground i think that is important it's a challenge for the bjp if social strife goes outside of ideological certainties of what it believes the social strife goes beyond a certain level if there is problems you it will have a knock on effect on multiple things including on your economy so that is a challenge got it so I think somebody asked this question: Why is BJP lacking behind in social media? I will only answer it by <laughs> this way: There is a dedicated chapter in the entire, uh, you know, there is an entire chapter. If I remember, it was this is a chapter seven. I don't remember the exact name of the chapter. I think it was chapter seven on 
BJP's social media strategy. There are some really interesting facts that Nalin has shared over there. So I would recommend the person who has asked this question to go and buy the book, read that chapter, because you know that person has made some points like, uh, why is BJP lacking behind in social media? Almost zero presence outside Twitter. Any strategy about Insta and YouTube? I think that person will be pleasantly surprised when they look at the data. BJP is the biggest behemoth on social media. And only, uh, as far as if I remember correctly, only on Twitter is where Congress at least gives them a little bit of a, a run for their money. Otherwise, everywhere else, it is just the biggest dominating behemoth. You know, people also have this misunderstanding about Insta because what happens is what is the internet algorithm, right? It will only show you what you watch. A lot of people who are BJP supporters, right, they tend to be cringe viewers on social media. They just go and watch the other side and they get obsessed with it. And then they think that they're, that's all social media is. There is the whole world on Instagram, which is BJP supporters. If you go and watch it, you'll know like there are huge BJP handles too. So yeah, so I'll recommend that person to go and buy the book and read it. But Nalin, before we wrap today's chat up, uh, any last message or words? Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Kuchal. I think, uh, uh, and for all the, for everybody listening and for the lovely questions. Um, you know, the point, the reason why I wrote the book is very simple. It is that, look, at some level, we are all prisoners of our eco chamber. See, we all have a view of the BJP. Uh, whether you support it, whether you think it's good for India, whether you think it's bad for India, whether you are, uh, whether, whether you oppose it, whether you're neutral. Mostly nobody is neutral about BJP. Everybody has a view. And I, and I think views don't change over a period of time. The point of this book was to get, and we all get influenced by Ecoji. Like you mentioned Twitter, the people I follow on Twitter are people who think similar to me mostly. So I will only see what they are saying. And likewise with you. What happens with Eco Chambers is that we believe something is happening. I think the point of this was to start a new conversation, to get out of this trap of Eco Chambers, to understand, keeping aside our judgments, our value judge, subjective value judgments, because that will be different for every person. To understand the facts of what is happening. Only then can you begin to really understand how India is changing. And for those who oppose the BJP, equally, that's not why I wrote the book, but for those who oppose the BJP, if you want to take on the BJP, you've got to really understand what it's doing before you can begin begin the real comprehensive response to it. And I think uh, what the BJP has done in the last five years, I want to say one thing. You know, when I say, my title says Modi in the making of the world's largest political party. Look, we are the second most populated country in the world. Why should it be surprising? Somebody asked me, why should, why, what's a big deal? It is a big deal because, okay, China and India will always be the biggest in everything when you look at numbers, but it is a big deal for a simple reason. China is a one-party state. Uh, in, in China, you have no option but to be a member of the Chinese Communist Party. In India is a multi-party democracy. Like I said earlier in this program, at the height of the BJP's successes in 2019, more than 60% of this country, almost 70% of this country did not vote for BJP. In such a country, if you are still the world's largest political party, that is telling you something is happening in this country. This cadre building, this kind of cadre building was done by the pre-independence Congress. I have not, there is no evidence of something of this scale nationally. At the state level, yeah, you've had many parties in DMK, ADMK who built massive cadre bases in, in, in Tamil Nadu or other parties in other places. National level, this has not happened. And therefore, I think, for example, the BJP has now built party offices in more than 500 districts, which has bought land and built them. You know, it has invested in building an infrastructure. So the, it is stronger than it looks. You know, you will lose an election here or there. Then in these elections also, we will see what happens in different states. But as one thing is clear, 
when the congress started declining it took 15 years 20 years for that impact to be seen in a serious way with the rise of mandal politics and kamandal politics in the late 80s today if the bjp stops doing anything it it will still remain the primary or the, among the top two primary polls of this country for the next for the next few years so we've got to understand whether you like bjp or not you've got to understand what is doing politically i think as citizens it's, we should we should be aware of what's happening i couldn't agree more and you know what i think you you summed it up at the latter half of your book where you say each time the bjp has focused on sharpening its position on hindutva the party's ranks have swelled every time it has waffled on this issue after the 1990s phase of consolidation under vajpay for instance it has entered into periods of decline yet hindutva positioning has never been sufficient on its own to win elections as this book has documented hindutva was the engine that gave it electoral momentum but election victories were fashioned by creating a unique cocktail of hinduness caste reengineering and a deep focus on welfareism and that's the whole point the caste engineering welfareism uh, is the main part and then the salad dressing on top of it is hindutva and that's what as of now is working for the bjp um we'll wrap today's discussion up uh, once again nalin thanks for coming so to everybody who's watching this right now or is going to be listening to the audio version or is going to be watching this video later in the description of the podcast is the link to buy nalin's book i insist each and every one of you especially if you're a political nerd and you look for data and you want to look and analyze data believe me just from this book in my opinion you can write at least 200 more essays citing data from this book itself and you can write 200 more analyses out of it that is how much data you have in this book like just for an example i told you on the social media question there is a dedicated chapter on bjp and its social media strategy this book is unique uh it actually gave me a lot of inputs on how bjp manages it doesn't mean bjp is invincible it's not going to lose even today it loses many state elections in spite of its well earned machine and that's the way it is we'll wrap today's discussion up so nalin once again thanks for coming on the podcast thank you very much kushal this has been a pleasure and uh, thank you for for listening and letting me talk and and thanks to everybody who um, who joined in and for your questions All right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up please subscribe to the channel like the video and leave your comments over there once again buy the book it is a must read book and if you like what i'm doing over here on the charvak podcast please become a member on youtube or patreon buy the merchandise or send your donations to upi i will see you next time until then namaste take care bye bye